Hey guys, welcome to the Good Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Rob Watson, and in today's episode, I am speaking with Rich Simerson, who is the Executive Director of the Orangutan Outreach, which is a New York-based not-profit organization, which has got a mission to save critically endangered orangutans and protect the rainforest homes. So firstly, Rich, I really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me today. Pleasure to be here. Great stuff. So obviously, you know, you are, well, I've kind of followed your work and your organization for a few years. I think it was, I don't know, about three or four years ago, I ended up um, finding out you and felt inspired to adopt one of your orangutans. I think it's Ganung. He's got one, you know, one of the cutest little faces and you can't help but want to, you know, help and support him in some yeah. way. But I think yeah. his story as well. Could you tell us a little bit about his story? Uh, Gunung is, is special, and, and I, I was checking right before we started speaking, and you started adopting him in 2015. All right, okay, great. It's been a while, huh? Um, well, Gunung is, is uh, well, he's, he's growing up now. He's, he's about, uh, say, I think maybe six or seven years old, or, or maybe even a, a little bit older. But he is being cared for in West Borneo, or West Kalimantan, at a facility managed by International Animal Rescue in the town of Katapang. And he's one of about, I'd say maybe a hundred or so who are being cared for there now. And he is uh, like so many others, an orphan um, because the, the forest where he lived with his mother was, was destroyed um, to extract timber and be converted into oil palm plantation. And when that happened, the, the mother was killed and the baby was grabbed and, and uh, ostensibly put on uh, in, into the network of animal smuggling. And he's one of the lucky few that actually got rescued by IAR uh, a few years ago. So uh, he's been going through rehabilitation all these years and he's getting bigger and learning skills that he'll need to eventually uh, go back into the wild when he's a little bit older. Um, so it's a, he's a work in progress. and and. Yes, he's incredibly cute, uh, for a lack of a better word. He's, he's, he has a smile that's, that's gone around the internet millions and millions of times. Oh, that, that's really nice to hear a bit more of his, his backstory. And um, so how many, you said there's a hundred in, in that particular place where he's at. How many kind of orangutans are you kind of curving for at the moment? Gosh, um, well, we work with a few large partners in Indonesia in both Borneo and Sumatra, the only two places where orangutans would naturally live in the wild. Um, and you'll sometimes hear me say Borneo, or sometimes I'll say Kalimantan. Uh, it's, it's all the island of Borneo, but the Indonesian part of it, which is about two thirds or three quarters of it, is called Kalimantan, whereas the Malaysian part is, is still called Borneo. And then there's a little nature, uh, sorry, a little nation of Brunei uh, tucked in the corner. But um, our partners are, are throughout Borneo and Sumatra. Um, so, gosh, between them all, there's, there's probably upwards of a thousand orangutans being cared for either in the centers proper or now being looked after in, in release programs or pre-release programs, depending on the stage they're at, from rescue to rehabilitation to release. And then there's, a, there's another uh, a fairly large handful um, maybe close to about 100, I'd say, who will not be able to be released uh, for either medical reasons or, or they've just been in a cage for too long. And so those will never be, go they'll never go back into the wild. Instead, they'll be cared for 
in sanctuary spaces, um, ideally with no cages um, or on islands or, or in large, uh, large compounds that are forested. Wow, a thousand, that's amazing. And so what, how, when did all this come about and how did you get involved with it? Uh, strangely enough, I'm entering my 13th year uh, with Orangutan Outreach, which I created in 2007, um, which was the height of, of the problems uh, that, were, that were starting with the orangutans um, and the loss of forest due to oil palm. Um, the problem goes back 20 years. I mean, you could argue that problem goes back 50 years uh, with, with deforestation and logging, but it's really the last 20 years, especially when instead of just cutting down forests legally or illegally to extract a high value timber, um, another piece of the puzzle was that after the land was, was forested, it was burned and then replanted with oil palm seedlings because palm oil is, is really a top um, oil for, for food products, for, for cooking, for, for even for biodiesel. Um, so the last 20 years has seen this rapid conversion, not just for the timber, but to actually then go ahead and, and destroy it, destroy the land and, and use it for oil palm. Um, and this sped up um, with, with the 21st century to a point where it was, I think they were saying uh, six football fields a minute were being destroyed at one point. Um, and, and that's just mind-blowing to try to get your head around. I mean, six football fields a minute, every minute of every day. And the loss of life and, and the, the damage it did to local people who were living in these forests, because often it was done to them, not by them. Although, to be fair, some of them did it to themselves, um, all in the name of, of, of profit. Um, so the oil palm itself isn't a new crop. It's, it was imported into Southeast Asia by the British, actually, from West Africa in the colonial era. But it's the realization that this was such a, a, a valuable crop and the, the ability to then use this land. And essentially, there was no, there was no pushback. There, were, there, were, there, were no, there was no law enforcement to protect the forest, or very little. And so what happened is the animals were basically just emptied out. Uh, local people were emptied out. Um, animals that were, were edible, and, and again, it depends, you know, how you define, what you define as edible, were used as such as, as meat and protein. And then the, the illegal smuggling trade of bringing animals out of the forests uh, into the rest of Asia for consumption or, or animal products, whether for, you know, so-called uh, ancient medicines, which really, for me, has no, no validity, but this is what was happening. People just realized you could commodify every single piece of the forest, and, and it accelerated. And I really learned about it in the beginning, but I didn't do anything, and I wanted to because I've loved orangutans my entire life. I've, 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 it's just an unconditional love since I'm a child. and. I felt, oh my God, I can't, as I learned more about what was happening, I, I felt like I couldn't not do something. So I began volunteering with existing organizations at the time. You know, this is back in 2005, 2006. And after taking a few trips over, I, I, I saw with my own eyes for the first time the result, the forests that were gone. So you're flying over what would have been forest and it looked 
you know, I, I, not to make light of it, but it looked like Mordor for anyone who's a fan of Tolkien. It, it really looked like hell. And then you would go to these rescue centers, uh, the existing ones at the time, and see all of these orangutans shoved into cages, desperate with their little eyes and their arms reaching, hundreds and hundreds of them, all orphaned, knowing that the mothers have been killed, others, others all the male adults have been killed, these, these great cheek patterns, these majestic animals. Um, and so many had not survived. So we were looking at probably, for every baby we saw, there were probably nine others that were killed. And I took a few trips and realized I have to do more. Um, and I, I, I sort of, I spoke with more people. You know, this was the beginning of, of social media and the era of really getting to be able to reach out and talk with people. And so I learned more about the situation and realized that the existing framework of organizations didn't fit my way of thinking. Um, you know, I was coming out of new media, what was then called new media at the time in New York, working in communications at UNICEF. So I had a, a certain way of thinking, maybe the New Yorker, my way kind of thing. I don't know. Um, and I realized, okay, the best I can do is sort of chart my own path, work with people who, who I see are doing amazing work. It just need help from the outside because my use is not on the inside. My use is on the outside raising awareness and raising funds. And what I realized is what the orangutans needed was outreach. And that was the big buzzword at UNICEF at the time when I was, when I was working there in New York. And I'm like, all right, let's, let's orangutan outreach. There, there we go. So I literally created the organization uh, from the ground up, partnered with, at the time, the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation, or BOSS, uh, who's still our oldest and strongest partner and set it up in order to raise funds specifically for that project or their, or their projects. Um, and we went on the backs of a, of a television series called Orangutan Island, which you may or may not remember, your, your uh, viewers and listeners may have seen a decade ago. And it followed the lives of these orphaned orangutans through their rehabilitation. And it was really sort of like a reality TV with orangutans. And, you know, there was a U.S. version, there was a U.K. version. We always thought the U.K. version was a little more intellectual. <laughs> um, and it went for two seasons, uh, but then the, the economy collapsed. And when the economy collapsed, there, so much media went with it. And Orangutan Island closed after the second season. But Orangutan Outreach, uh, I had positioned it well enough to, to be able to maintain itself. And, and then continue to grow. And so with subsequent years, I was able to work with more partners and, and even partner up with new groups to, to create new centers. So to find pieces of, of, of Borneo that were not being addressed in terms of orangutan uh, murders, for lack of a better word, to, to create centers. And that's actually how Gunung comes into the picture because we partnered up with International Animal Rescue to create a, a new center in West Borneo and Gunung was one of the early rescues. So, so it, that's how he comes into the picture. Um, and we expanded into Sumatra by working with the Sumatran Orangutan Conservation Program and Dr. Ian Singleton. Um, and those, so BOSS, IR, and SOCP are really the big three that, that we've been working with for now almost 13 years. And it's, it's really, it's, there's many good things, many bad things over the years, but here we are, and the deforestation has slowed down a bit, although you might be able to argue because there's less to cut. 
Um, finally, the, the, the train of babies coming into the centers has lessened. Uh, but again, you could also argue that there's because there's fewer in the wild. Um, but the one positive trope that I'll keep coming back to is that over the last uh, five years or so, we've been able to really, and we meaning the partners, you know, Orangutan Outreach is a big funder from the outside, but these teams on the ground of mainly local people um, working for these fabulous organizations have been able to get a release program uh, going that that's gotten hundreds of orangutans who were rescued as infants and, and rehabilitated or rescued wild and just sort of kept until they could go back into the wild. So hundreds of them have now gone back into the wild and they're reproducing. So there is some light in, the, in this otherwise tale of darkness, I like to say. So there's, there's the, the long answer. <laughs> what was the question again? <laughs> yeah, it was about, you know, what it's all about. So you've, you've given us a, a really good snapshot there, of, you know, tell us about and it's, it is amazing really to think that, you know, you've, you've felt like you've had a connection with them all your life and, yeah. and you know, you've, you're working at UNICEF and in New York and, and you've obviously just felt like, you know, the need to go out there. So you went out there a few times and then you're like, okay, I'm going to do something about it, which is, which is amazing. I think maybe a lot of people yeah. might have these dreams and these desires that, you know, I want to help, but how can I help? But um, yeah. you've obviously maybe with your, being your experience, being at UNICEF, you were able to use that experience. But it's really amazing to think that you've followed up on it and 13 years later yeah. helped thousands of orangutans. It's, it's crazy. I mean, <laughs> there isn't a day that goes by where I don't think, oh my God, this is still happening. This is still, because it, it's, my, it's a love and it's an obsession. And, and yeah, I mean, if I look back at the trajectory, um, to, to right now it, it's it's it is you know i i i'm always self-effacing and I, and I always keep myself in the background i never really you know I, I, we don't need this old bearded dude as the face of the organization when you have these beautiful orangutans um but yeah i every once in a while i, I probably should stop and and, and uh, smell the roses i guess and just acknowledge the fact that yeah it's it's 13 years and we've seen we've seen the life cycle now, you know, we, we've, we've seen births and we've seen them raised from infancy. And one of the, the best stories right now um, that, that really, you know, because again, on, on March 18th in, in 2020, you know, the world's kind of a mess and, and seeking some piece of light and all of it is, is key, I think, to our own sanity. And, and we happen to have a story um, coming out of, again, West Borneo in the IAR Center. Uh, one of Gunung's older cousins, uh, a female named Monty, who was one of the first rescues back in 2009. Uh, right when we, we'd all shook hands and said, okay, we're going to make this center work. And, and you know, I'm so proud that Orangutan Outreach has been able to help IAR see this through. Um, but Monty, who, who was you know, this big, when she was rescued, she was tiny um, in this dilapidated, abandoned transit center that IR took over and, and with, with Dr. Carmela Yano Sanchez and expanded and moved it onto a new site and acquired land and built it out and this turned it into this, this magnificent operation that, with a conservation center educating local children, phenomenal. And little Monty over the years, 
over the 10 year period, grew up and went through the rehabilitation from day, literally day one. And of all the, the, the you know, the starts and stops and, and, and positive and negative of what's happening with an uncertain future. And, and, and by the end of her rehabilitation, you know, she'd, got, she'd grown into a big orangutan, a nice healthy female. Um, and she had a mothering instinct. And the staff at IAR, they paired her up with a new infant who'd been brought in and another orphaned infant. And that baby, Angun, connected with Monty and vice versa. And as soon as they were together, Monty just took Angun and put her on. And <laughs> it was as if, you know, it, it, it's miraculous. You know, maybe we're easily amused, but, it's, it, but it is an amusement. This is a, a, an, an orangutan who'd been raised in captivity, rehabilitated by humans, was able to take a baby orangutan who was the same size as she had been when we found her and be her surrogate mother. And they spent a year or so, a year and a half together at the rehabilitation center on an island living semi-free, you know, monitored, but, but essentially in a forest situation. And then just last month, Carmelli's team took Monty with baby Angun to be released into the real forest where they're now you know, they're, they're being followed by staff to make sure they're, they're doing all right, but so far so good. So this is like this, this full circle of, of, of life that, that we've been able to see. And I think that's what really with time, you start to see these things happening. You know, five years ago, my conversation with you would be very different. It would be much more bleak. There wasn't an exit strategy. Numbers were still going up at the centers. And we weren't sure what's going to happen to all these brave souls that managed to survive this long. Like, where are they going to go? But now at least we have this output going. And, and it, those sorts of things make me think, wow, I've been doing this a long time. And, and you know, thank God there's good people in the field doing good work and, and making this so. Because for people who love orangutans, this is the only hope for the future. Wow, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing to hear about Monty and the way that she's taken yeah. on. Um, you know, a surrogate baby and stuff. And that's the thing that like you say, that's them success stories give you that, that extra boost, that injection of energy to go, you know what, I'm going to keep, I'm keeping going. Of course you yeah. keep going, but Absolutely. is that positive yeah. energy behind something? Um, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And so what, what else in terms of, so when you take in, um, say you found like Ganung or something, you bring them in, what, what sort of, what's the rehabilitation like? You know, I bet some of them are in a pretty bad way. Most of them are actually pretty bad, um, and like so bad that it, it's, it's. I mean, some of them are are almost dead. You know, Carmele at IR once once brought one in who was almost mummified, oh, no. um, and it's not necessarily because people were doing it on purpose. They just didn't know. I mean, it's just more ignorance. Um, you have some that have have had limbs cut off machete wounds because they were cut off their dead mother or maybe even cut out of their mother everything imaginable they come in with with bullet wounds you know there some would have more than a hundred pellets in them and then you know these are usually the the larger the males the larger adult male and females and they have a will to survive which is mind-blowing 
Um, they, they just, as long as they're alive, they're alive. They, they, you know, sometimes I, I wonder why don't they all just kill themselves? <laughs> you, know, you know, humans don't deserve to have them on Earth. You know, it's like the Earth, the Earth isn't good enough at this point. Um, but yeah, they, they come in and, and, and not just so much the physical wounds, but they're obviously clearly traumatized. You know, and with an orangutan, much like a human, the musculature in their face is so similar where you're looking at their expressions. And those are real expressions. I don't care what anybody says. You're looking at them and they're looking at you and you, you have a very good idea of, of their level of pleased versus displeased at whatever is, is in front of them, whether it's what they're eating or who they're with or you. Um, so you have this psychological effect as well. And, you know, again, this is a, a, an orangutan in nature would be with his or her mother for eight years, seven, eight years. They, for the first couple of years, they're on their mother. They don't, they don't let go. You know, they have iron grips. And they're, you know, again, they're also, you know, you know, 80 feet up in the trees. It, it's like a whole world that we can hardly comprehend. And, and they've been torn out of that um, and often trafficked in very unpleasant circumstances. Sometimes they end up as pets in local villages until they die or someone has mercy and makes a phone call to a center often they end up trafficked out into the, the smuggling networks that are controlled by billion dollar mafias with no law enforcement, essentially. And they end up trafficked to the Middle East or into China or into Russia where, where they, they're, they're or, or even in, within Indonesia as, as uh, prestigious pets because it's absolutely illegal to possess one in Indonesia, according to statute. You cannot touch one, harm one, hold, it's illegal. But those who consider themselves above the law have them as pets. And this is often the, the, the governors, the, the bupatis, the leaders of the villages, the military commanders, the chiefs of police. This is too often the case. So um, that's how, this is the places they end up. But when they happen to be rescued and they bring in um, first they go through a quarantine uh, to make sure, you know, they, and they go, they get health checks to make sure they didn't catch anything from the humans because if they were in villages uh, where, where there's dire poverty, chances are they came into contact with hepatitis or tuberculosis or, or, or God knows what we, maybe a coronavirus. We don't know. That's a whole other conversation. Um, so they're checked for, for their health. Um, they're, so they're kept by themselves in quarantine, and then once they pass all the tests, some don't pass the tests, and they and, and they go in a different direction, you know. But again, there's no euthanasia, so they're always cared for. Some don't make it. Some just come in so ill, and so you know they've been fed a diet of coke and rice for a year, and 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 you know, they don't have hair and, and everything imaginable. Again sometimes you get angry, sometimes you pity. I mean, it, because of, of these situations where they're found in. I usually get angry, but over time you have to just have mercy and pity and, and, and feel bad for the people that are in these circumstances even begin with. Again, another conversation. But the babies will come in and let's say, like Gunung, for instance, he was pretty healthy. Um, so he went through his quarantine um, and then once they, they get the green light from all the vets with, with the same protocols, basically you wouldn't give a human, <laughs> uh, which we're learning all about now. Um, 
And then they're, depending on their age or size, or I mean, because some are teeny tiny. You know, some just need to sit on a pillow or sit on a human babysitter all day because, I mean, they're, they're months old. Um, if they're a little older and a little more aware and looking around and curious, they'll, they'll be put into a nursery school or baby school because chances are there's other orangutans similar in age or size. Um, and that becomes a cohort or, or a class, basically. And so they, they will then become friends. <laughs> and that's, and that's, it's, it's pretty amazing. It is that cute story that you look at a photo and you just melt, you know, and people love and people share. And, and it's amazing because what these little guys and girls need is, is a friend. They need comfort, you know, because basically they're used to being, you know, and they'll sit and you'll see these photos going around of they're hugging each other. I mean, because that's their instinct is to hug and grasp. That which brings us back to Monty, which is why it's so fantastic to have a baby grab onto an older female, because you've almost skipped four stages of a rehabilitation. But other than that, the baby goes through baby school and as they get older and they start becoming stronger and more curious, they're learning how to build nests, they're learning how to climb and how to swing in trees or brachiate, learning what to eat, all, all from the human caregivers who are 99% uh, indigenous local Dayak women at the centers, or in Sumatra, not Dayak, but uh, local village girls, um, almost exclusively female. And, and again, another great conversation is this is the first time these girls have been in a, in a money economy. So that's another sociological uh, PhD waiting to be written, I guess. Um, but the babies will grow and develop, and as they develop, um, they'll move up in the ranks. And up until now, there, there have been so many babies at the centers that there's literally classes. You know, there's for school one, for school two, for school three, as, as you know, first grade, second grade, third grade. I guess that's, well, that's what we call them in the U.S. But, <laughs> um, and again, it, it's just like humans, except orangutans. And, and, you know, they have good days and bad days. Some are, some are excellently skilled. Some are, are a little less skilled than others. Some, some don't want to build the nest. <laughs> some maybe build the nest two inches off the ground and they won't go up. You know, and eventually what happens is something kicks in, an instinct, and they become orangutans. And they climb higher. They swing further. They build a better nest. They want to stay in the nest out at night. They don't want to come back because most often the orangutans in forest school come back at night to the center and sleep in the, in the communal cages, which is also pretty amazing to watch when they all run <laughs> and jump into the cage together. You know, it's like, and then when they come out, it's like a clown car you know, because it's a cage this big and there's like 10 of them in there. And again, that's not their permanent housing, but it's for sleeping purposes because they just they cuddle. Um, and they'll just, they'll keep developing. Again, you have some that are, that don't develop so much. Some, some just don't it, you know, again, it's like humans. <laughs> some of us were a little slower in some subjects. Um, but in, in the perfect world, they just keep developing. And depending on the exact center, because they're, they're all designed a little different because some are older and have different land use issues with islands and some have vertical space, some don't. But what happens is once they get, once they get stronger, really, once, once they're too big to be handled by the, by the humans and they bite and they grab and they don't let go, they, 
they graduate into sort of a pre-university and they'll shift from a little forest school, which is local, if possible, onto an island. And the shows Orangutan Diary, Orangutan Island, and now Orangutan Jungle School all feature these aspects, um, this, this aspect of, of rehabilitation. And basically they'll go live on islands. Sometimes they're man-made islands within a facility ground. Sometimes they're actual river islands that are protected and patrolled. Um, or sometimes they're whole areas of forests that have been uh, basically acquired by these organizations, our, our partners on the ground to, for use. And then the orangutans, as they grow more comfortable in this wider space, they get wilder and wilder and they want to stay there. They don't want to come back. They, they prefer to forage for their own food instead of being just given, you know, the, I mean, again, the orangutans, they're not going to say no if you hand them a piece of fruit. They're, they're not dumb. They're going to take it. But, but they realize that there's more exciting fruits up in the trees and there's more, there's more good stuff out there. And they just, and they show each other. So they're socially learning. And once one learns how to, or what it is, and if you can eat it, they all learn and, and they all do it. And what we've seen over the years is as these cohorts develop, you know, they're, they're a group. And this is another interesting thing that's now being studied is in the wild, orangutans would be separated. You know, there's mothers and young, and then the males sort of roam around, but they don't live in social groups the way chimpanzees do or gorillas. They're, they're, they're isolated. You know, they're not solitary, solitary to the extreme, although they tend to be loners. Um, but so now coming out of these rehab programs, they're socialized in groups. And that's, uh, we don't know how, are they going to stay together in the wild? Some do, some don't. Or do the, do the, do the instincts kick in and the, and the females claim their territory and then the males roam around, which is how it is in nature. The females dominate the territory. Female has her land or her forest with her children. And when her children grow up, the daughter takes the contiguous forest out and out and out. And the males get kicked out <laughs> and, they have to, and they roam around and then basically impregnate females. Um, so we're gonna be seeing what happens in the, in the wild with these newly released, newly created populations. But what happens, getting back to the rehabilitation is once they've basically expressed absolute perfection in these in these island situations, and they, there's no need for them to come back into a center, they're given final medical tests, final evaluations, or observed to make sure they're not sleeping on the ground, they're, to make sure they're not uh, having too many social issues with each other, um, and they're basically green lighted for a release. And with IR and BOSS. Those, those groups then go out, sometimes in groups as, as much as 12 of them or more, in these big release uh, programs. So they'll be taken out to an area of the forest deep in the heart of Borneo, deep, far away. I mean, there's some human villages, but there's no, no industry. There's nothing, there's no one there yet extracting the trees, so to speak. And they're taken out and they're released. And, and BOSS now has done it with hundreds of orangutans. IAR is, is creeping up now with their numbers. Um, ironically, on two ends of the same national park. So eventually those two groups may start to meet each other. Um, and 
that's it. I mean, that, that's a success story once they're released. And, and again, as I said before, they're followed. So there's teams on the ground comprised of the local indigenous people who are employed by the projects to, to follow the orangutans along with people from back at the centers and veterinarians um, and occasionally PhD students to, to monitor them and make sure they're all right. Because some of them have trouble when they get out there. And if, if they do, they can always be brought back some of them have gotten sick, some have died, some have been bitten by snakes, um, things that you, you can't prepare for in life. Um, but that monitoring is, is, is now going on for years. And after a year of them in the wild, they're just, they're wild. They're out there and they disappear. They all have uh, trackers in them so they can be followed by, by radio. And, and we're, we're now looking into developing programs where you could send drones up to basically monitor where all the, where all the beeps are. Again, in development. And, and again, the terrain isn't so friendly for that sort of stuff, but, but that's an idea. And I have this great Im image of all the beeps and a grid and watching them move and, and speeding it up and seeing <laughs> almost like this great dance of, of the beeps. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's the perfect success story. I mean, so someday, knock on wood, Gunung will will probably a couple more years um, will be in a in a release program. Um, yeah, and then and then again, I should say that there are those who don't get released, and that's that's one of the biggest concerns we have right now, both in terms of long term care, funding, personnel. Uh, keeping people interested because you know it's, it, everyone loves the cute babies. I mean, again, you look at Gunung and I mean, how do you not look, right? But the, but it's some of these bigger adults that are going to need the major funding going forward. It's really amazing to hear like the really in depth, you know, work that you guys are doing. It makes me feel even more grateful that I've been supporting you for what you, oh, you said five you. years, and um, I'm interested to know so. Like how many orangutans are in the wild or how many were in the wild until, you know, it kind of like the deforestation really kicked in? Mm, it, it varies. I mean, there were hundreds of thousands before the industrial deforestation. Again, there were always, there was always poaching. There was always consumption at the indigenous level. Um, again, they're viewed just as meat uh, by, by some people. Um, it's, it's a tough number, both in Sumatra and Borneo. Um, the numbers we've used over the, again, someone will be like, oh, he's wrong. Blah, blah, blah. But we, we've, we've estimated between 35 and 40,000 in Borneo still wild. Although I'm not, I'm not an expert at the demographics. And, and I find that. I think it's lower, but again, I don't have data. So it's just my opinion. I act as if it's lower, which I think is in their best interest. In Sumatra, it's a little trickier. The estimate used to be about 6,000 wild, and then it was suddenly bumped up to about 15,000 or maybe 12,000 or so, because there was another population that hadn't been accounted apparently. But then a couple of years ago, it was decided that a certain subspecies was actually its own species. So in Sumatra, you have, uh, most of them are above, they're all in northern Sumatra, but there's some that are separated from all the others. And it turns out, it's fascinating, their DNA is actually closer to the Bornean orangutans. So they're in Sumatra, but they share DNA with Borneans, which 
really takes you back to the point where it was all one landmass, Sundaland, you know, before the waters came up and you had the separation. So that's going back, don't quote me, but I don't know, 50,000 years, I, I, I don't know. Um, and this, and the, these are called Tapanuli orangutans because that's the area of Sumatra they're in. And the scary part is that there's, there's barely enough of them. There's only, a, I think, maybe 800 or so, probably even lower. And they're in three little populations and, and the authorities with their Chinese billionaires investing in it and the oligarchs are building a dam, a hydro dam right there in the middle of their forest. And it's absolutely unnecessary. We all fought it, but the powers that be are building the dam. And it's, it's sort of not stoppable at this point. Although with coronavirus and this shakedown of the economy, maybe it is stoppable. Maybe a silver lining of sorts. Um, but this, these Sapanuli orangutans, if these three populations of them are cut off, they'll eventually implode. It's just a matter of mathematics of, of, of DNA collapse. Um, so we're hoping beyond hope that we can keep them going. Um, but we, it's hard, you know, we're not, we're not pessimistic, but we're not really optimistic either. We're just, it's, it's, uh, there are people playing at this that, that have a lot of money at stake and it's little conservationists. We're, we're the mosquitoes as far as the, the economy. Our, our, the economy is considered is, is looking at this, um, but within Sumatra itself, you have all of the Sumatran orangutans up north, not the Tabanulis, and SOCP is really the, the go-to organization caring for them, and they've had their release programs uh, over the, over the years as well, and, and it's successful. But again, you have encroachment into the forests from all angles, and these these crazy ideas to build roads through the forests and. and and again, this touches back to when I was at UNICEF because, you know, my heyday was, was right after the tsunami hit. And this, you know, again, the tsunami so long ago now, um, but it, it devastated the, you know, the areas of North Sumatra and Aceh region. And there had been a civil war in Indonesia at the time between the North Sumatrans and Aceh and Jakarta, basically wanting to be independent. And the tsunami basically ended the civil war because there was such devastation and loss of life. And as soon as the war ended, the rebels who had been hiding out in the forests were no longer in the forests. And so without them there, the forest started to be destroyed, sometimes by those same people, sometimes just by industrial loggers, sometimes by international companies wanting the wood. Um, and again, the same thing, it was converted into oil palm. You know, the convoluted story, but long story short, that the Sumatran orangutans have, have really faced a tough, tough situation. I mean, all orangutans have, but in Sumatra, there's fewer to start with. So whether it's 6,000 or 12,000, it's dire. They're critically endangered. And in Borneo, there's more of them, but it's not necessarily better because they're spread out. You know, you know in the U.S., when I'm giving a speech, I'll say, all right, well, Borneo is like Texas and Sumatra is like California both big spaces, but one's considerably bigger. And in, in Borneo, you have subspecies of Bornean orangutans that, that are different. I mean, they could all interbreed in theory, but they're all technically different species. Um, and the, the individual populations, so while, while there's more in total, 
the individual populations are shrinking. And if it goes below 300, it'll collapse. And that's what we're dealing with. And you, so you start to see whole regions that have they've been decimated. So you have a lot of these babies where ideally they would be taken back when they're older to the area where they came from. But that can't happen because that force is gone. So what, what organizations like IR and BOSS have done is they've found new areas of forest that ancestrally had orangutans in them, but they were, they were uh, pushed to extinction hundreds of years ago, maybe a hundred years ago. And those are being, that's where the release programs are taking place. So these are forests that are perfectly suitable for orangutans, but no longer have them because you can't just take the unreleased, you can't take the rehabs and put them in with wild ones because the fight will be over quickly um, for obvious reasons. Um, but back to the numbers. So we tend not to use exact numbers. What we do say is that the numbers are going down drastically and rapidly. And that's what needs to be stopped. We're pushing back with the released orangutans and creating these new populations, but it's still a band-aid relative to keeping these wild populations safe in the wild. And there's, there's a few of them. And we, uh, you know, our partners work with on the ground and with local peoples and, 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 and concession owners to protect them. But again, orangutans wander off their, their area and they, if they come into conflict with a human, the, the winner is always the human. The orangutan never wins. And maybe they get a bite in, but they lose. And that human orangutan conflict is always an issue on the peripheries. And that's a tough one. You know, you, you, you mitigate it by sending out, sending out teams to, to raise awareness and, and educate the local people. But at the end of the day, if a farmer has his little piece of land and, it's, and an orangutan comes and eats some of the fruit and they need that fruit to feed themselves and make some money, they, they, it's, it's not going to end well. Maybe you get a phone call and then you go pick up a body. You know, it, it's, it's not pleasant. It's usually not positive, but occasionally it is positive. And it's those, those rare occasions that we focus on now, you know, with the IAR rescue team, with the BOSS rescue team, going out and, and at least trying to save a mother with the baby. Because a mother and a baby saved together is a whole different ballgame because then they don't have to go through rehabilitation. They're brought to the center. They're tested. They're maybe cared for by the veterinarians and their nutrition is brought back up. And then they can be what we call translocated, which is to say taken to a safer area of forest further from people. Again, not perfect. It's, it's like me taking, it's like you coming here and taking me out of New York and putting me in Chicago. I'll, I'll figure my way around, but you know, the, someone in Chicago may have their way with me. <laughs> you know, you know it, it, it's sort of a, the parallel is there. So, so long story short, we want to protect the wild orangutans in the wild while creating these new populations and caring for those who can't be released to the best of our ability. So that's sort of like the three-pronged approach. But yeah, that, that's really interesting because something that's really inspired me over the years to get more interested in conservation and wildlife is when I start to come across statistics like over the last 50 years, we've lost half of the world's animal population. <laughs> Yeah. And I have got a few projects going on. I go give talks to students and other, um, and other people. And I, and I, I let, let them know this statistic. 
And it's like saying, well, does that mean in another 50 years there'll be nothing left and it'll just be us? But by that time, we probably would have destroyed ourselves as well. Um, <laughs> so, it, you know, to, to see what you're doing, and obviously you can't do it on your own and you probably can't solve it all, but at least you're doing something amazing and you're slowing the actual, um, yeah. you bring an awareness to people, you're slowing it down, you're creating yeah. a space for them to go back out into. Um, so it's really, really admirable. Um, what you're doing and you know it, you. It, it must be it must be chance like I've spoken to quite a few people who run charities and organizations and often they're so in it and you know you're telling me stuff you must get bad news all the time about it like you're saying the ob the billionaires coming in doing stuff and it's always a bit of a fight against yeah. you know the system in place yeah from us looking outside and you know we can be saying wow you know it's amazing um what you're doing and and, and the path you're going on. But in terms of, um, I'm interested to know, like obviously you sound, you actually sound like you're a New Yorker, um, but I understand that you actually grew up in, is it California? And that's where you first got that love of, yeah. of animals. I'm from California, but I lived in New York City for the last 20 years. Um, and I moved up north. My wife and I finally escaped from New York, so to speak, um, and moved north um, for a little peace and tranquility. Um, yeah, in California, we like to say California is the future. <laughs> um, and I moved back into the past. Um, but yeah, there's just a more awareness of the outdoor existence of nature on the West Coast. It's, I, I don't know how to explain it, to be honest, but there's just something about the wide open spaces and you know, the proximity to mountains and oceans and deserts all within a, within a drive, um, that sort of thing. But again, you have that in other parts of the world. So it's not that special. Um, but my, my orangutan thing, it, it's, it's difficult um, to explain because it's, it's really goes back my entire life because most of my life I wasn't doing anything even remotely related um, to orangutan conservation, but it always, whatever I was doing, wherever I was, whoever I was with the orangutans always managed to touch me somehow whether I was flipping TV stations and there happened to be an orangutan show on, um, or whether I was walking down the street and looked in a window and there was a, a, a picture of an orangutan or a book about orangutan, something like that, or walk past a toy shop and there'd just be a little plush orangutan in the window. Um, always there. Always, always, always. Um, and Again, a lot of what I do, you know, my own obsessive compulsive <laughs> behavior, um, some of it has to do with the fact that I feel like, oh, wow, I kind of missed the boat 30 years ago or 20 years ago or, or whatnot. And so I'm trying to make up for lost time. And it's not something I recommend to people <laughs> because it's basically a recipe for burnout, um, especially if you're in New York City doing it. <laughs> um, but but yeah, that, that's the, the inspiration is the orangutans themselves and that um, I am blessed um, that, I, that I know I love orangutans and that it's clear to me. There's no doubt it's unconditional. I'm also blessed that I have a very tolerant wife <laughs> who's, who's learned to love them um, tremendously. Um, but it, it's, it's, it, it's created this central focus um, Again, I do other things when, you know, I try to balance, have balance in life, but, but it, it's over the years, it, it's really just rolled and rolled and rolled and I've, and I've, and other people have gravitated towards it 
and you know, there's actually another person working with me now. You know, for most of the time, it was just me hammering away at a keyboard and an iPhone. Um, but you know, again, Orangutan Outreach was created in 2007, um, really before social media got going. Um, two years in, Facebook was starting to really roll out for the general population, and and and. and there was no Instagram yet. Twitter, I think, came around 2009 or so, 2008 maybe. Um, so it was a different world where this really was, as an organization, advocacy for orangutans, representing, like it was a voice for the orangutans and a voice and an outlet for these projects. Now with social media, the, the landscape has obviously changed because all, all our partners, all the groups are online. Everyone can get messaging out. Um, so what I've really focused on is, is just sort of steering the brand, so to speak, not to get too business speaky, um, but just this idea of orangutan outreach and giving people an opportunity like you to adopt an orangutan. I mean, you can adopt from a bunch of organizations, but, but you've been with us and we're, you know, we're grateful and you know, we're grateful for all of our supporters. And that, that's something that, most of our support has come from individual donors. You know, we're the, we're the Bernie Sanders of, of orangutan conservation, you know, you know, 17 bucks or, or in our case, 10 bucks um, per month to adopt an orangutan. And, you know, I, we track all our data, you know, so we know all of the adoptions and who was adopted over the years and who the popular orangutans are and what regions people adopt from. So we, so we follow all of our data. And it's, it's really become a global phenomenon. And it's given people the ability to like, come to orangutan outreach and, and, make, and maybe adopt an orangutan from this center or that center or that center or all the centers to sort of have this holistic point of view. Um, and, you know, again, like you, like you said, yeah, there's a lot of bad news. A lot of it is just depressing with what we deal with. Um, but there are fortunately some positive outcomes. Um, we wish there were more, but there, there's increasingly more. Uh, and, th and that's really the, the inspiration. I mean, for me, I, you know, I get depressed a little every day. Yeah. Um, and it seems that what the rest of the world is starting to catch up. Um, but I'm fortunate in that I can just look at a picture of an orangutan or a plush orangutan and feel some force enter me something good something full of light full of life full of love and that's the inspiration to keep going um to, to keep doing it um and yeah that, that's <laughs> that, that's 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 where we are you know i i wonder what's it going to be like in 13 years you know not you know like, what, what about you know five years what about even a year from now and, you know, and this gets us back to the state of the world right now with the coronavirus, you know, because one of the things um, in Sumatra, when you go to the SOCP facility, it's basically one road and you drive down it. And as you get closer, you, you pass little areas where people are selling bats for consumption. They're raising bats for food. And we're thinking, Every time we see, you know, we've been going for a decade now and you drive down the road and you're like, God, oh, no, these people don't eat the bats. The bat, you're going to, you're going to get something. The bats have viruses that we can't handle. And, you know, we feel sort of like 
crazy people, you know, we're like the crazy foreigners or, or, or when I'm here talking with friends, I go, oh God, Richard's going to talk about the bats again. Oh, Jesus. Um, that, that's what we've now seen in China with the Wuhan virus that, from the bats. So it's like, it, it is real. Maybe it's not from the bats in Sumatra infecting the Sumatran population, but it's, we, we're part of this. And we're, we're seeing that when the forests are destroyed and the, and the animals are extracted, the viruses in them are extracted as well. And that's now what the rest of the world is dealing with, all of us. As we sit here, you know, I work from home. You say you work from home. So this whole work from home thing, we're used to it. But most people are now working from home. You know, my wife works for a company in advertising and deals with personnel and everyone's working from home and it's a new thing for everybody. And it's, you know, it's this brave new world we're in. But it's very much related to deforestation and animals and conservation. And, and who knows, maybe it all ends tomorrow, you know, uh, but probably not. <laughs> No, no, probably not. But I do think, you know, just talking about the coronavirus, it's definitely, obviously, we're in this grip of fear. As you said, it's the, what is it, the 18th of, of March now. So we're kind of, us in the West are really, really starting to feel it. And who knows by the time this goes out, where we'll be. Um, yeah. But there's generally, you know, I, I believe that things happen for a reason. A bit like when you were talking before saying, all your life, you just keep on seeing pictures of orangutans. You know, they'd be everywhere. You turn the TV channel on, you'd walk past something in the shop. It's almost something inside of you that is pulling you along to it. And yeah. I just feel like the coronavirus can really ha- can potentially help to rebalance things. You yeah. balance the the air pollution, what's happening on the ground. Yeah. You know, yeah. I know I know that ext- extinction rebellion have been releasing footage and info about when China shut down all its factories, the difference it's made, like in certain yeah. towns now and cities there, the cloud has moved so people can see the blue sky again and the sun. So this is yeah. kind of, you know, one of the massive positives from it all. And I'd like yeah. to think if it does go on for extended period of time, which it does seem to be, it could go on for that amount of t- enough time to actually change human behavior, to make us wake Absolutely. up. And realize yeah. that our decisions that we've been making have an effect. You know, maybe when there was 100 million people on the planet, it didn't matter so much. Yeah. But when there's 7 billion of us and we're just, it's all about take, take, take from the earth. As if we yeah. live on this planet, as if there's infinite resources, yet there's not. You know, we're, sh- we're seeing that now. Like yeah. you, see, yeah. you probably have it where you guys, we go to the shops now, there's no toilet roll. Um, you know, there's no hand sanitizer. You can't even go to the shops now. <laughs> you know, every, all, you know, all the pasta's gone and stuff like that in places. And it, it's, we're starting to realize well, what truly is important. It's not the latest iPhone. It's not the next new clothes. It's not even them events that you go to. It's realizing, you know, and I think, and what I'm noticing just from already is how nicer people are becoming. Like I'm getting, you know, there's just this love that's coming out. I think people yeah. really feel like, they're about to lose something, but in that way, that's cracking more of us open to be, you know, show our true selves. So yeah. off the back of this and tying it into what you guys do, it, it can potentially, you know, really help what's happening in Borneo and other places to slow down the, the rampant, you know, deforestation of, of the, the field. We're hoping, you know, yeah, again, I saw a headline this morning in Italy 
uh, obviously with the, with the reduced with, with with the quarantine, there's no industry going on. So you, same thing as in China. All of a sudden, the smog was gone over northern Italy. And then I read that there were fish spotted in the canals in Venice. I'm like, oh my god! Never even occurred to me that there could be fish in those canals. <laughs> it's like, oh. You know, and, and it's like where nature can, nature will. Um, and yeah, this is we're we're watching how things roll out in Indonesia because the pandemic will get bad in Indonesia just because it is, you have a situation where you have so many people claustrophobically living, especially on the island of Java. I mean, there's millions and millions of people. I mean, that's Jakarta's just normal times is chaos. You know, they're even trying to move their capital into Borneo. Just another, another disaster in the making. But, but we'll see what happens as this un, unrolls there. I mean, it can't not, I mean, I'd love to be proven wrong, but it can't not have a, a massive effect on an aging population with little or no health care. I mean, kind of like the U.S. Uh-huh, bad joke. Um, but it, it, it's probably going to get very bad in Indonesia and how it will affect the oligarchy there because Indonesia really is controlled by a handful of, of wealthy families. We'll see how things go in terms of, of the continued depletion of resources and what they do in terms of deforestation and mining and, and God knows everything else they're doing to destroy their forests. But hopefully it will have an effect to slow it down or maybe even turn it around. It's hard to be that optimistic because it's almost like everyone's just kind of hunkered down and then once they get the whistle, they're they're going to spring out there with the bulldozers and make up for lost time. Again, I, I, I'm like you. I'm trying to be optimistic about it and see that there is a, a silver lining. I mean, I've, I I love orangutans. I prefer orangutans. They're my favorite, you know, uh, primate, <laughs> including humans. Um, so we'll see what happens. We we don't know. I mean, we're you know, on a more dire note, we're we're hoping and praying it doesn't affect the COVID virus. Doesn't affect the orangutan population specifically because there's a damn good chance it might or would or could or will. We don't know. Um, the partner organizations are, are now rolling out protocols, uh, basically shutting down the centers and keeping everybody out. Um, and we're worried about the staff at some of the centers, especially in Borneo, because last fall and then a few years ago, there have been catastrophic fires, which just, polluted the air and, and left hundreds of thousands of people with respiratory illnesses and, and, and brain damage. I mean, it's everything imaginable from smoke inhalation. And these people are all highly susceptible, obviously, to a coronavirus, because just by nature of, of it being a respiratory situation. And if it starts affecting the local populations, it, it almost by definition will penetrate into the rescue centers themselves and could affect the orangutan. So we, we literally, we, we don't know. And, and we're on a day-to-day information sharing about what's happening. Um, 
we don't again as since we don't know who knows maybe all the humans die and the orangutans take over you know <laughs> maybe that should be a movie oh <laughs> yeah. well i am um, i pray to god that they're, they're okay and i'm also yeah. you know pray to god that it doesn't affect too many humans but i think along the way if it can wake us up because also i think yeah. about this as well is that often um, we humans get distracted by a lot of stuff. It could be sports. It could be many, many things. But now we're mm. not going to have all them things to distract ourselves. So the focus is going to be a bit more on us going inward to realize, you know, do more self-reflection. But also we're going to have much more focus on our governments and how they are. And we'll realize probably for the most purpose that they're not fit for purpose. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe, and you know, yeah. and they haven't got a clue in some instances, and also realizing who are they actually, who are they, who are they actually serving? Are they serving the people and the planet and the animals, or are they mm-hmm. serving industry and the companies? So that's going to be spent. Your light's going to be spot on that because there's not going to be distractions of going out to restaurants, to catching up with friends, yep. to going to watch sports. You know, so it's definitely um, it's an interesting time, and yeah, who knows when actually this does go out, what the world's going to look like, but. I am an eternal optimist, even though I am also um, doing my best to, um, you know, I'm thinking like I've got older relatives and families and I do not want to, even though I know I'll be okay, I'm yeah. being conscious. I don't want to harm anyone else, even in the process. So yeah. yeah, I do. I pray that your, um, your orangutans are going to be safe throughout this process and also yeah. people that are looking after them out there. Um, so I also understand that one of you on along the path here as well. Did you did you spend some time living out in Barcelona and and actually being in one of the zoos there? You you brought up yeah. a bit of a connection with one of the orangutans there. Many 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 years ago, um, I after college I went to Barcelona. Um, so this just to put it in there. Nineteen ninety three. So a long time ago, um, and I would just went there to live, teach a bit of uh, English, <laughs> um, and you know they used to have this very famous gorilla named Copito de Nieve, or uh, Snowflake, who was the only albino gorilla in the world, and so he was famous, gorgeous, gorgeous gorilla, um, and I would go and to see Copito. I live, had, a, had an apartment near the zoo, and so I would spend my days wandering over there, just watching. But on the way to see Snowflake, you'd walk down the path, and there was this, this shitty, awful, horrible stone enclosure with a big orangutan sitting in it with the most disgruntled, sad, and angry face. Um, and I basically just bonded with him. And I'm like, eh, Copito gets all the attention, whatever. Copito gets all, plenty of attention. Everyone's going to see Copito, Copito, Copito. And this was Mo, this great cheek batter sitting there in, in, the, in the most horrific cell block. I mean, basically just, he was sitting on a piece of concrete with two metal things. And in one of them, he was like a wheel and he rotated. It just created this amazing, horrid sound of metal grinding on metal. And he would do it every night, like late afternoon before it was time to go in. And it was just his scream to the world. 
you know, in the wild, he would have been, he would have been letting out a long call to let all the other orangutans know he was there and where the females are. And, but in this situation, he's just stuck there, like imprisoned by humans. Um, and I would go see him often and often. He was my Ishmael. There's a, there's a book called Ishmael that you may or may not have heard of it, about a gorilla who basically teaches a man how, how about the world. Um, and Mo was sort of my Ishmael in a way. And I'll never forget him. I, I spent hours just staring and watching him and sort of eye to eye. And once you've looked a non-human primate in the eye, I mean, you could maybe argue once you've looked an animal in the eyes, things change. But once you've looked, in my case, an orangutan, or I suppose for some, a chimpanzee would do the trick. Um, once you really look in their eyes and they look back and you, 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 you communicate, because without words, you know, maybe we're talking, but they're not talking. But they're, they're saying so much. It's almost just like a... Uh, like they're downloading information into you and it's phenomenal you just you you feel them yeah and i don't want to get too kooky about it but you you just all of a sudden you comprehend their sense of being or, or their being again it's, sanskrit probably has great terminology for this um and, th and that was many many years ago and i i, I mean he's on my wall uh, where is he? He's, well, I have orangutans everywhere, but he's on the wall. <laughs> um, and I think about him often, um, pretty much every day at some point. And, you know, he was one of many along this path who, who spoke to me, you know, not with words, obviously, but spoke to me. Um, and he stuck with me. And, and everything I do is connected to somehow alleviating the situation for obviously I can't help Mo now, but for Mo's cousins, so to speak, and all of these great cheek patters sitting in the cages in Indonesia, waiting to be let out, either to go free or to be on an island or just in a, anything better than where they are now. And again, it's no fault of the of our partners. You do the best you can with a three hundred pound male orangutan that wants to have sex with. <laughs> every female inside you know you know again at the end of the day as my friends at international animal rescue remind me they are animals <laughs> you know it's it's i call them gods but that, that's my own religion um but so everything is connected back to to mo i mean in in my my own narrative and every time i see a cheek better i see mo and, and there's others along the way that you know, didn't make it out of their horrible enclosures. And, and you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's bittersweet. I'm, I'm honored and blessed to have had the experience, but I wish to God it hadn't been like that. In the same way, I wish to God we didn't have to do this. You know, I wish the orangutans were just all safe in the forest and, you know, we can fly there, pay a ticket to admission and, and you know, not go too close and just see them in the wild where they belong. Because an orangutan in a cage is the most depressing thing ever. You know, you know, many of the zoos do the best they can, but ma many are just strapped for cash and the enclosures aren't good. Um, but an orangutan in a cage is, is, is I mean, it's like a human in a cage. 
You know? <laughs> Something's not right about it. You know, I guess, you know, unless maybe you did something and you deserve it, I guess. Uh, those are other issues. <laughs> yeah, I think there's something about when we see animals, you know, they feel so helpless and it's certainly yeah. not their choice. They haven't done anything wrong. Um, and when you talk about that, it reminds me of the documentary Blackfish about Turkey yeah. that's, you know, kept up inside like at night he's in this tiny tank normally each day he might swim up to 100 miles maybe or more yeah. and all of a sudden he's in there and you know sea world will come out of their narrative saying you know you know they're treated well and they're in chlorinated pools and and it makes it makes me think one of the questions i want to ask you because i know with tilikum they would probably maybe in the captivity they would only live you know, a dozen, 20 years max, but in the wild, they could be 70, 80, 90. And I'm wondering what's the comparison of orangutans ones that in captivity compared to like out in the wild? That's a damn good question. I don't have exact data, um, but what I can say is one of the researchers in Sumatra who was there for enough decades saw a female live into her 60s um, we know they live into their 50s. The females live longer than the males, same as humans. Um, they live longer in the wild, but again, it's tricky because if they're in the wild, it's almost like a zen, zen situation. If they're in the wild, they're in the wild. We don't necessarily know unless we're following them from the birth. And that's longitudinal far into the future because a lot of these research programs are new. We know they die the males especially die much younger in captivity. They get what's called air sarcolitis and they have respiratory issues. Um, and it can rain, it, it could be, well, it's genetic obviously because we've seen it passed down generations. Um, but it's, it could be related to just the ambience, the environment they're in because they would normally be in this dense rainforest with thick, moist air. And if they're living on a dry, frozen, uh, compound in North America or in Europe, that's just not, a, their biology is not made for that. The diet is obviously altered in, in captivity. Um, also in, in the wild, they, they're groomed different because they're in the wild. They're not like, as they're moving, the branches are, are, are brushing their hair. So you see these orangutans sometimes in the wild who look, perfectly quaffed <laughs> spectacular you don't get the dreadlocks necessarily that you get in, in captivity because they're not moving around enough they're sitting around they they haven't developed the full use i mean it's it's sort of like the anti-yoga you know because they're not using their whole body the way they're meant to you know a lot of the newer zoos and the better zoos frankly have vertical space make use of poles so they can move and swing into different areas and enclosures you know like in the national zoo in washington you know the orangutans live better there than most humans i think you know, they have different areas indoor outdoor they can be near each other far away from each other they can go up and they swing over the humans into other areas so they have a lot of space and you know if, if i had to be an orangutan in a zoo that would probably be my number one choice um, but in terms of their life expectancy, yeah, it's, it's lower in captivity. Um, I don't know if there's many studies in terms of the birth intervals. Um, in the wild, 
a mother has a baby every seven or eight years. And the baby, it takes that long for the baby to grow up, grow independent of the mother and, and move on. At which point the male conveniently arrives and she gets pregnant again. It's this, this great dance of nature. You know, it's a rhythm. It, it's how it works. Um, in captivity, obviously, the breeding goes on at the whim of the human caretakers, whether the zoo needs babies or, or whatnot. And, and there's programs, as the species survival program manages the orangutan populations in the zoo system. Um, there's one in Europe, there's one in North America, and all the data is shared. And, and so there's, there's scientific thinking behind the genetics in the zoo, in the, in the captive populations to try to spread the genes out as much as possible. Um, so there's people thinking about this issue. But yeah, the, the long story short is, is yeah, that in captivity, they live shorter lives. There's some that have lived longer. You know, there, there's some, not longer, but there's some females especially who have lived to, to their 50s. Um, it's interesting, there's a few in North America who are the last of the wild caught Sumatrans. Um, again, zoos haven't had imported orangutans in, in decades now, but you have that last generation who are still alive and they're, and they're long lived. So that's saying something. I, I don't know what, I've, you know, there's, there's some scientists, Dr. Graham Baines is an expert um, who deal with these issues. Um, but yeah, they belong in the wild. <laughs> and, also, you know, and obviously the life is going to be reduced, but also it's just the quality of life. Like you said, when you're in Barcelona and you're connecting with that guy and you're just seeing how unhappy he is. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that enrichment is so, what we call enrichment, you know, which is the providing of something to entertain their minds and keep their minds active and, give them diversity and variety in their, in their otherwise mundane life. You know, nature would take care of that just by, by existence, you know, their lives in the wild. You know, again, the orangutans aren't the most active creatures. <laughs> they're, they're pretty mellow. They're, they, they can they sit still for long periods of time. We, we like to call them Buddhas or yogis, you know, they're, they're up there because it's so freaking hot. <laughs> there's an economy of energy going on. So they move when necessary, <laughs> you know, because any extra wasting of calories could be critically, you know, could be problematic. You know, so they know where the, where the fruit patterns are, which trees to go towards, and they'll get there in the most, you know, expeditious way. <laughs> and they'll sit and clear the tree and, and sleep a lot and repeat. Um, so in, in captivity, there is this need for constant enrichment. And it, it's in a, the zoos are, at least the good zoos, um, the, the accredited zoos, that's part, they're aware of this. And there are lots of attempts made to, to entertain them, so to speak, to, to make them, to challenge them for their food. Um, they always win the challenge, but, but you know, just to, anything to keep them a little, to shake things up a little, with the pairings, where they can go. So there's, there's attempts, valid, effective attempts made to mitigate the, the, the otherwise boredom of existence in, in captivity. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing like all these parents now whose kids are home from school for the next three months. What are they going to do to entertain these little wild humans? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be creative. 
Um, some will be entertained well. Some will just jack into a Netflix and that's it and stop to eat and pee. Um, you know, with the orangutans, yeah, you know, we had an iPad program for a while where we would distribute iPads and the, and the keepers would let the orangutans play with the touchscreens because, they, again, they like it. There's a tactile it fit except the thumbs. Their nails were a little too big to fit on the same thing with us. If you don't cut your nails, you can't use your phone. You're like, damn. Um, and we had it in quite a few zoos and sanctuaries. The iPads are still out there. The, and we got a lot of promotion about it. You know, it was really meant to raise awareness and funding for the wild populations, ultimately, and provide a little enrichment locally. Um, and especially in the, in the winters when the orangutans don't go out. Because a lot of the zoos, they have good outdoor spaces. But, the, but during the cold months, they don't go out. So they're sitting basically, it's like you're sitting in your room all winter. You, know, you gotta better be well entertained. So, so that was part of our reasoning behind the iPad project. And it was successful. It just sort of didn't gain enough steam. And then there were always problems with the technology and the lack of Wi-Fi and, and you know, same issues as, as schools have, I guess. Um, but yeah, that, that's something we always think about, and me especially since Mo. Again, every time I see concrete, I think of Mo, and you know, like sitting there, it's like a little prison yard. You know, it goes out to walk in a circle and have a cigarette for an hour, and then goes back into into solitary, I guess. But yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating, isn't it? When you're talking about you know kids now who are going to be off for a few months. It's almost we're moving into a social experiment there as well with how that's all going to unfold. Um, but then, of course, there's parallels to, you know, as you, what you're all talking about. So if, if someone is listening to this and going, well, you know what, I want to join, I want to join and like, you know, sponsor someone like Ganunga, someone, um, how, um, as well as how they can do it, I'm interested to know, like, how many other, other people are there like me who are, you know, giving, you know, this $10 a month to, to support you guys? Um, numbers wise, we have about 900 adoptive parents, I'd say right now, you know, it, it fluctuates around nine, between 900 and a thousand, depending on the on marketing and promotions going on at the time. Um, and it's $10 a month. Although I can announce it here. We're about to raise it to uh, $15 a month. Not for, for new adopters. <laughs> Inflation. Okay. We're first time in 13 years we're raising the price. Um, or 150 a year. Um, so people who adopt for the full year, it's a little cheaper because um, there's lower fees and whatnot. But, but really, like I said before, jokingly, we're the Bernie Sanders of, of uh, adoptions and, and orangutan conservation. It, most of our support is from normal people. You know, we get some corporate support, some, some grants, some really good grants, you know, no disrespect to the grants. Um, but a lot of our support is really just school kids who do a project and, and raise the 10 bucks a month doing chores and things like that. Um, and people like, like you, you're a perfect example. You, you love your orangutan. I mean, you part of your life. <laughs> um and people can, can really just do it by just going to our website, redapes.org, and adopting an orangutan. If you go to the website, you go to the adoption page, and you'll see we have quite a few on there now. Um, we're actually, some are going to be graduating, like Monty, now that she's been released, she's no longer adoptable. We have a few more that are going to be 
graduating and being released. And we'll be adding a few more just to keep it fresh. Um, and, you know, looking ahead, we're going to be adding more adults who are going to be cared for in these sanctuary spaces because they're the ones, you know, as all the babies graduate and move out and go to college, <laughs> get jobs, <laughs> um, we're going to be left with mainly adults. And that's really going to be a, a, a change in focus because people don't fall in love with the adults as much as they do with the babies. People don't share the, the photo of the big adult male 10,000 times on Facebook. Everyone shares the babies. Babies are cute. Get that. But that's something that we, we really need to focus on is this long-term care, long-term sanctuary care with adequate stimulation, adequate enrichment, adequate funding, adequate space. Just, and, and I want to say more than adequate, the best we can give them. Um, so yeah, people can just go to the website and adopt. And, and we're very grateful for that support. Um, as you know, the adoptions last a year. Uh, you get updates a couple times a year. We, we, it's all done online. We don't send anything out. Uh, it's just too costly to mail things, mail paper and mail. You know, you can order plushies and things on, on site, but, um, but in terms of sending it out, it's so costly. And we'd much prefer that the funds go to the projects for the orangutans themselves than, than to uh, credit card companies and banks and post office and things like that. But yes, yeah, it's, it's that simple. You adopt and they're real orangutans. Very, these and for better or for worse, we've had some die. And there's nothing more sad than having to write to an adoptive parent telling them their adopted orangutan passed away. It's like, but that's part of the cycle we deal with. Um, we don't want to be one of these large $50 million organizations that has, you know, adoptions that are just sort of in theory. You know, it's the idea you're adopting an orangutan, but it's not really an orangutan. Little Gunung is real, you know. <laughs> yeah, better for worse, he's real. He gets sick, he gets the flu, he has bad days, he has good days. He, you know, these are real creatures that need help. Yeah, and that's the thing that uh, I remember being drawn to as well is that feeling, you know, as you say, you're the Bernie Sanders of, of you know, side of things where it is a grassroots thing, it is people yeah. on the ground and feeling like, you know, your money's going to go somewhere. And nothing against the other ones, like, you know, WWF and that, which I've done before. I remember yeah. um, um, sponsoring and supporting, like, uh, is it mountain lions and all sorts yeah. of things. But it, I got one, I started to do some more research and realizing that actually not that big a percentage of my money was yeah. even making its way. There was so much administration, administration costs. They were paying totally. separate companies to run fundraisers for them. And then, you know, they would, you know, almost like 50% of it would get swallowed up in that. And that just didn't sort of sit right with me. 50% isn't even that bad. I mean, we, we aim for 90% at orangutan outreach. We've been pretty good about it. And, and in fact, it actually goes up to 100% because a lot of the times we have certain donations cover the rest of the operations, you know, the IT, the websites and all this stuff. But no, there are some organizations that don't even give 10% to the actual field. Wow. It all goes to overhead and the administrative fees and the, the fancy offices. I mean, my fancy office is, you know, <laughs> I feel like, Mo, you know, I'm like sitting here, I need my metal wheel to spin. Um, but yeah, that's another thing. 
when I created orangutan outreach, I wanted to do it specifically so that if we were asking a child to have a bake sale to raise 10 bucks to adopt an orangutan, how, I can't even imagine the audacity to, to not give as much of that as possible to the projects. Again, it's, it's conservation. It's never going to be perfect. You know, and it, it's, you know, this is the human world, but you, you got to inquire about these things. Um, it, it's, it's sad. And, and again, being in this now for 13 years, I've seen organizations start and stop. I've seen people come and go. And yeah, it, it, some people are in it for the right reasons. Most are, I think. Some aren't. Some get bored with it. Some just sort of, some get, it's too depressing. Um, but there, there are also people out there who, who are malicious, who are bad actors, and who are taking advantage of the fact that people look at a baby orangutan and think, oh, so cute, and open up the wallet. And they know that you can do that. And it breaks my heart and makes me angry as hell. But it, it's, it's not, it hasn't stopped. And, and, and it's like I don't have enough energy to, like, to, to go crazy about it. There's, there's too much other stuff to go crazy about. But you just hope people do their homework, do their research, and they, they, they ask the right questions. Some do, some don't. Well, that's why I made up that I'm doing this interview with you, and we've chatted a bit for over the past few years and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, this can give it a bit more, you know, it's nice to hear a bit more of the story of it. And, and obviously I already see from, you know, the research that I did built up a lot of trust, but I'd love to think off the back of this that there'd be a few more donations potentially that might seep in and but if someone else is listening to this and obviously would love to donate and and to sponsor and to adopt an orangutan what else can they do whether it's with your organization or you know if someone actually wants to go out and be on the field and like help is is the programs that people can get involved in to go and work in some of the rehabilitation centers that's tricky <laughs> um the programs we work with and support are all strictly hands-off. There's, there's no, there's no cuddling. There's no one's going over there to hang out with the orangutans. You know, there's projects that can, you go and you're, you're helping with the enrichment. You're helping with the construction. You're helping prepare the meals. You know, like a situation like Bosnia Romenta and our oldest partner, they got like 350 orangutans and maybe, I don't even know the exact number any day of the week, but, so that's a lot of meals to prepare. Um, granted, it's not Michelin five-star, you know, preparation. You know, it's not Gordon Ramsay. You know, it's, it's still a lot of cutting, <laughs> a lot of oranges, a lot of corn, a lot of, a lot of fruit, a lot of coconuts. Um, so there are volunteer programs where people can go over and help with that sort of stuff. Um, and it, with, with Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation. IAR doesn't have volunteers now. SOCP doesn't have volunteers. And the truth is we wish no one had volunteers because it's just not safe uh, for the passing of, of, not safe for the orangutans, never mind the humans. <laughs> um, and especially now, now with the coronavirus, there's no volunteering. All the, everything's basically in a lockdown. God forbid one, one human cough could, could kill off every orangutan in a center. So that's being extra, extra, uh, careful now um, but in, in normal times assuming we go back to normal times which is an assumption I guess <laughs> um, 
Yes, there are volunteer opportunities. And, and you know, we usually on our website, redapes.org slash volunteer, we list the ones that we're supporting or promoting. And they're usually handled by third parties uh, who, who basically do it professionally, which is a, is a good and bad because there's a fee involved. So someone's making a profit and all the money isn't going to the orangutans. But at the same time, it's at least handled professionally and handled correctly because there are other things out there that I won't even mention, but where they don't have protocols, they don't have rules. And we know that humans are getting cuddling with the babies and we know they're going to cough and we know they're going to die. We know this, you know, it's no, like in Sumatra, we know there's places where humans go as tourists and the infant mortality is basically, they all die. (laughs) That's every two years there's a new baby because the babies die that we know this and it just, it doesn't stop. It won't stop because of the poverty and money talks and you have rich, or not even rich, what you just have Westerners who go over there with a lot of cash so they can get their freaking selfie and they cough, you know? So, so these are major problems or even in, in Borneo, there's situations where there's masses of tourists who go for their, to witness the feeding um, and so you have 50 people sitting around a platform and the orangutans come and they get their bananas and they have the babies and you have humans screaming and coughing. And again, it's slow motion train wreck. Um, but to do it right, you go, you go with some of the proper outlets. Uh, there's, there's Borneo Nature Foundation is another group we support and they actually run a research station in uh, Sabangao Forest. Um, which is one of the last remaining forests of central Kalimantan that has an intact, a huge population of orangutans. And they take volunteers for scientific type things. So basically biology undergraduate students can go over there for a period of time and and help collect data, um, which is the coolest thing in the world. And had I had my brain out where it should have been instead of in another place, maybe I would have done that. You know, when I, when I was 17, 18 years old, um, but that's, there are these opportunities to go out there and witness it because I can say that having not gone into the field until my mid thirties. Wow. I mean, it's when you're standing there in a forest, it's, it's life changing. It, it's this, you are just a changed person. I mean, it's not heaven. <laughs> I'm going to pretend it's perfect. You know, there's, there's, bugs and snakes and things of that sort. Uh, But just the fact that you're in this ecosystem that we've all read about and watched David Attenborough for years and years and years and fallen in love with and said, wow, cool, amazing. Oh, every emotion imaginable. When you're standing there in it, even if for a day or an hour, you feel it. And for a young person to have that opportunity, wow. Again, people who live in it are laughing right now, <laughs> you know, but coming from a perspective of, of, of Britain or the U.S. or Canada, it's special. It's something we just, we don't have. I mean, in, in the U.S., we can go down to our, our swamp areas, but it's just not the same. It's not going into Borneo. I mean, it's, it's like another planet. It's brilliant. I mean, it's mind-blowing afterwards you're you're like holy shit (laughs) going wow bravo to the people who are here working long term and you just you have all the love and affection for the for the local people 
um, unless they're doing bad stuff, then I have less love and affection. But but just yeah. again, this is someone's world, and and we'd like to preserve it for the orangutans and for the people. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds um, it sounds incredible, and I I can imagine that you know we can watch so much stuff on TV or we can see the heartfelt pictures on Instagram and stuff like that. But yeah. like you're saying to be out there and to experience it that almost really particularly for you would especially really embedded it within you you know you having that mission basically it's become a mission for you hasn't it a lifelong yeah. mission oh, yeah. absolutely and yeah. and it seems that you will continue for you know as long as long as you can um, as long as i have to <laughs> yeah yeah true and um, so it's been you know it's been amazing talking to you. i think i could talk to you all day but i like to ask all my guests um you know because you know this podcast is all about sharing what good people are doing and there's absolutely no doubt what you've been doing for the past 13 years or more but not just that you know going back at your other work that you would have done at unicef and um, you know a lot of good work but what advice would you give to someone who's looking to go out there and to do their own bit of good in the world depends um educate yourself learn what it is you're interested in study it amass as much information as you can and again it depends on what it is in, in my case i learned about orangutans i learned about the politics of indonesia the history of indonesia the, the situation with the natural resources and then i reached out to organizations and asked questions lots of questions um, and you try to connect with someone who who's willing to be connected to and again that that's kind of an easy one i think in this world because of social media I mean, you can literally just find them on Facebook and pester them. I don't want people to pester me, <laughs> but um, but really just find, you have to inform yourself, become informed um, and, and, and come from a place of, of education. Of, right, so you've, you've, you've learned what there is to learn and now you want to figure out how you can make a difference. And that's possibly volunteering with someone or some or an organization already doing what it is you think you might want to do um, to, to see maybe you'll hate it. <laughs> you know, make sure you're actually into it. Um, again, as much as I can love the experience of being in a rainforest, I couldn't live in it. I've, I've spent far too much of my life in, in the Northern Hemisphere and in, in, in the U.S. to be able to live in the rainforest. It's, I, it's kind of funny, in fact. You know, it's like it's it's amazing, but at the same time, the mosquitoes, and, and there are illnesses, there's malaria, there's dengue, there's, there's all sorts of fun illnesses pre-coronavirus <laughs> that are part of it. Um, and, and so you have to be comprehensive of it. You, ha you have to understand that um, what comes with it, you know, beyond the romance, or maybe part of the romance is is getting malaria. It shouldn't be, but <laughs> I know plenty of people that have had malaria. I haven't, thank God. Um, but really just becoming aware, reaching out, getting the, getting to know the situation, because thinking of it almost intellectually as a problem, not as a necessarily a bad thing, but just something that, all right, something that you want to help sort of, not, not fix, because fix is putting a value on it. In the, in the case of orangutans, you, we, what can I do to help them survive? Yeah, that, that was basically a, a, kind of an easy one. Um, and then write things down. Like, 
come up with ideas about how you can make a difference. For most people, in the case of conservation of what, I, what I'm doing, the, the answer is donate, to be honest, because we as Westerners are only so useful, unless we're veterinary specialists or ophthalmologists who can fly over and do emergency surgery on an orangutan who had her eye shot out. Uh, you know, unless you're that level of expertise, most of us, uh, we're, we're, we're cheerleaders. I mean, I'm in a way a glorified cheerleader. I'm, I'm raising funds for these projects, but I'm also sitting here in the comfort of, of my uh, quarantine sequestered existence in New York, you know, raising funds, but, but cheering on the teams in the field. Um, and again, I, I, I take as little credit as I must um, because it's the people in the field. And, and part of this questioning when you want to pursue a goal is how can you help the people who are on the front line? You know, it's, it's like right now what we're dealing with in a coronavirus. What can we do to help the nurses and physicians in the hospitals dealing with people who are ill? You know, you can help by not buying all the masks. <laughs> That's a good thing. And you just apply that, that logic and reasoning to whatever situation is. And again, if you want to do something to help, I think there will be a way to help. I, I think the universe operates like that. If you're coming at it with the right intention and you're, in, and you're not there to self-aggrandize or you're not there to, to make a million bucks, although there are some people who make a lot of money doing this and they shouldn't, but it's just my own value judgment. Um, if you have this desire and will, I think the universe will present an opportunity without sounding too kooky. No, it's not, not too, too kooky. <laughs> no, that sounds incredible. And yeah, it's absolutely, you know, pleasure to, to sit down and to, to talk with you and to find out about the journey, to get much more insight into the actual organization and the incredible what you're doing. Like I am in awe really and people like you and other people that I've interviewed who have really got that, have been driven by something deep inside of them. It's, it's bigger than them. And yeah. I think that's the thing is saying to people who are listening to this, it's finding that deeper meaning, that deeper reason for doing something. So, and it's great for me to be able to, to sit down and, and to sit with someone. I appreciate it. Yeah. You can listen to me blab and blab and blab. <laughs> no, it's no, it's been a pleasure. And what I'll do is I'll be sure to, um, I think you mentioned the web address. Is it red ape? Uh, Red here. I'll be sure as well to include all the links and stuff, the stuff that we share. People can, not only you know get involved in terms of you know supporting the charity but you know stuff you talked about the volunteer links and stuff like that but i'll include all that in it but yeah rich it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today thanks for your time and you rob much much appreciated and thanks for your support for the last what is it five years so thank you from gunung <laughs> so there we have it guys there's my interview wrapped up with rich from orangutan outreach i hope you guys enjoyed it as much as i do if you feel inspired to get involved with the organization please do there'll be links in the show notes and and also if you enjoy this please share it with a friend it helps get the message out of what rich is doing and how we can help potentially help more of these orangutans and just have more of an awareness of what some, some of our actions are doing like for instance when you you go and buy something in the supermarket and it's got palm oil in maybe we'll have a bit more of a connection with what our actions are doing so yeah all good guys so anyway until next time have a good one <laughs>